Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. We are in Matthew, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are starting a new sermon series. Again, if you, you've probably heard me say this enough, uh, I like how Matthew kind of broke up what he was talking about. And he wrote, you know, with a certain kind of focus for a few chapters and just a good transition and, and just kind of, we, we're joining him on this journey. And so this new sermon series, we're talking about the unexpected. And so we already know that Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah. And it's totally unexpected than what everybody thought. They wanted this military leader. They wanted somebody that was going to overthrow Rome and they could be them and do their own thing. And so they're already unexpected by the Messiah. And then as he continues to talk about what does kingdom living look like in an earthly reality, the one thing we could say is very unexpected. Not how probably most of us would have planned it. You know, when you talk about if you want to be the greatest, you need to become the least. If you want to be the first, you need to become the last. And, you know, the greatest of all of you is going to be a servant. Some of the disciples are probably sitting there and he's like, this is so unexpected. And so this morning we're talking about unexpected humility. Because that's the thing with expectations. You know, the disciples, the Jews, even though they had the Old Testament, they had these expectations that were set on what they wanted to see. And when we set false expectations, and when they're not met how we would want to see it, sometimes it comes across as a disappointment, you know? So like even in my marriage, like one of the worst things I can do or be done to me is my wife sets false expectations on me, Right? Or like, oh yeah, you're going to be this awesome husband, you're going to, you know, work out, have a six pack, you're going to have hair. You know, she could set a lot of these false expectations on me and then is just disappointed. And I didn't even know I was supposed to be working out. I didn't even know I was supposed to try to grow hair. I've just been waiting on her to tell me, you know. And, and then the same a lot of times in any kind of relationship, if we set false expectations and when the other person fails to meet those, that can kind of hurt. And sometimes we do that on the Lord as well. We set false expectations on who we think God should be or what we think God should do. And then when he doesn't, because he is who he is, not who we say he is, we're left with disappointment. And so even as Jesus comes and he's showing that he is the Messiah, they, it's unexpected. And even as he talks about, okay, but follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And what does that look like? This is unexpected. I never, you know, they're probably sitting here thinking, I never thought it was going to be like this. Like when I'm thinking about kingdom living on earth in this earthly reality, this is unexpected. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 18, we're going to go to verse 14. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And is that not like a bunch of guys just to see, all right, who, who, can, who can do the most pull-ups? Who can do the most push-ups? Who's the strongest? Who's the fastest? It's, we're, we're dudes. That's what we do. And so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn... Become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why I act like a child so much. Right there, I'm just trying to get into heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And you guys get shocked at some of the things I say. You got Jesus over here saying, you should just go drown yourself. That'd be better if you cause one of these little ones to sin. I don't know if I want to come back to this church. But woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand is kind of, we've heard this before. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not, this is verses highlighted in my Bible. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so we have Jesus talking about humility starting. And it's, and it's unexpected, you know, and I get it. Especially you have the three that walked up on the mountain with Jesus, the transfiguration. Obviously they kind of saw there's something different about us three than the other nine. We're his favorites. We're all that in a bag of chips. But there were still three, and who's going to be one of the three here? And so I could see them bickering, Jesus just walking along, and you got the 12 behind them just fighting about, well, I was one of the ones who went on the mountain. Well, I didn't go on the mountain, but I got to do this and that. And they just start bickering back and forth and fighting. And finally, one of them gets the guts enough to say, Jesus, we got a question here. <laughs> He's omniscient. He already knows what's coming. Who is the greatest? And it's like, you guys are nuts. This is all you're going to worry about. We got bigger fish to fry. We got bigger things going on. And this is what we want to fight about is who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so you hear Jesus and he grabs a child and he puts him in the midst. And uh, tradition tells us that this is uh, Ignatius uh, as a tradition, as an early church father. This was him as a child. And I love little things like that. Now, is that perfectly true? Is there a way to verify that? No. But what is neat is that was a known child. That's like me grabbing little Aiden Knapp over there and bringing him up and saying, you guys need to be like Aiden, because that kid's awesome, right? But you need to be like Aiden if you want to enter the kingdom. This is somebody's boy. This is a kid that was known. And if that was me, I'd have, I'd have been walking around and like, hey, you remember when Jesus was like, hey, you want to be the greatest? And he pulled me out of the crowd, Remember those days? And I, I was only eight or nine, and I was already there. And you guys are old. You need to catch up. Come on. You know, that would, that would have stuck with me a little bit. But he pulls this child, and he says, you need to be like this child. And, and there's a term that's used in the church that, honestly, I'm going to step on some toes here, and you're welcome, that I'm not one of my favorites when we talk about a childlike faith. 
We hear childlike faith and we think, okay, I got to have a faith that doesn't doubt, that doesn't question, that doesn't seek explanations. It disbelieves. Like when I was a little boy and an adult would tell me something, I just believed that, right? We didn't doubt, we didn't question, I didn't seek an explanation. You just believe and you go on your merry way. The problem with me is I have a lot of doubts in my faith. There's a lot of times that I am questioning and seeking the Lord and saying, is this really, like, align me again to your will? And I have those doubts and I have those questions and I am seeking explanations. You know, some people ask me, like, one of my degrees is in apologetics, so you can defend the faith against people that have doubts and questions and need explanations on things. And I think one of the not one of, the greatest reason I got a degree in that is I needed that. I wasn't looking at the world thinking, okay, how am I gonna answer this question or that question? Those were my questions that I had. I was the one struggling with, why is there so much evil in this world and why doesn't God do something about that? I answered that. So I still believe that in our biggest moments of doubt, that's where our biggest steps of faith can be. And so to have this childlike faith where we don't question, we just, just do what you're told and don't question about it, I don't like that. And I think, honestly, when we're raised up in the church with that kind of mentality, when we get old enough to have wisdom and reason, and we need to be ready in season or out of season to defend the hope in us, if the greatest thing that we have is, oh, I believe that because the pastor told me. Or I believe that because my youth leader or my Sunday school teacher. If, like, if that's our greatest thing, that's, you really don't want to get into an argument and say, oh, I believe that because the bald guy says it's true. I eat McRibs. You can't trust me, okay? <laughs> and not for flavor, but for the freedom of it. But we have to be able to look at this word and understand our faith and defend it for ourselves. And so to have this childlike faith that doesn't seek explanations... No, seek the Lord. If, if he's putting a question on your heart, and like, why is there so much evil? Or why did God allow this to happen? Or why this or why that? I think the Lord's putting that on your heart so that you would seek him and find that answer. And sometimes that answer will come, sometimes it doesn't. Like, I don't know why I got cancer. I can answer every other question, how, when, all that. I don't know why. And I'm still waiting on the Lord to reveal that one to me. I've seen some fruit come out of that in my ministry and in my life, but I don't know why. Maybe that is the why. But we need to keep running to Jesus in our questions. And so I struggle with that, just childlike faith, because Jesus tells us that childlike faith, it's not about intellect. It's not about this low intellect, do what you're told, nothing like that. Childlike faith isn't about intellect. He says, whoever humbles himself. Childlike faith is about humility. And this is where we have to understand the culture of the day in which Jesus is living. So guys, we were the top of the food chain, as it should be. <laughs> Every woman in here is going to send me a bad email. No. But the culture in which they lived, men were the top of the food chain. And then it was a woman. And a child was seen as property. They, they weren't even seen as, you know, like, they were like a lower than human. You were just, you were more of a burden on your family than you were as a gain or something good to be cherished, cherished and, and enjoyed like a child should be. You were just like property. And so when he's saying, have humility like a child, 
He's talking about our position, not an intellectual thing. So not a knowledge that puffs up, but a position that holds low. That in the society in which I live, the culture and the world, it's not about me, but I'm gonna humble myself. I'm gonna come low, not try to put myself on a platform or a pedestal. And so humility, I love this definition of humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not like, oh, I'm horrible, and I don't have any hair, I don't even have a six-pack, why would my wife even like me, and I don't like how certain words that I say, and who would ever want to listen to me preach, and da, da, da. It's not thinking less of yourself and just trying to beat yourself up, because some people take that kind of mentality real far, even to the point of self-abuse inside the church and not where we got to think less of ourselves and treat ourselves less. No, no, no. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. And if we're thinking of ourselves less, that means we're thinking about others more. Which I think that's what Philippians is talking about in two, chapter two. Talking about the humility of Jesus. That it's less about us and it's more about what God is doing through us, not for us. And so humility, that's what childlike faith is about. Not an intellect, but of humility. And so Jesus is saying, whoever humbles himself like this child, instead of trying to be the greatest, where you got the high seat of prestige and, and power and all of that, no, no, no. Humble yourself like a child. Like, I, I love, I, I really do. One of my favorite things when we first came here, the very first day we're driving up 42 and we look over and there's just this metal building. I love that. I love that you don't roll up and it's this magnificent building with you know, gold plated everything and no, we're, we're just in a metal building. I love when people walk in and they see us as a staff and they're like, those are your pastors? Yep, it was a buy one free deal at Kmart. It was awesome, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's your pastor? I love that. I really do. And I, I, there are some people I look at, it's like, I feel like, remember when uh, Samuel was trying to find the next king of Israel? And he goes to Jesse, if you've been watching the Jesse tree stuff, he goes to Jesse, and he's, he's got all these sons that just look and act the part, and it's like, that's, that's a dude. And then he gets to little old David, cute little old David, teenager, you know, doesn't even look the part. I love that. I love when people look at me like, what do you do for a living? You're not gonna believe me if I told you because it's not about us. And so Jesus says, humble yourself. And so he uses a child as an example, not of innocence or purity or of faith, but of humility and unconcern for social status. It's not about me. And whatever position, whatever social status, whatever platform that we have, and if it's we, we're a boss of a, a corporation or if we're the mailman, whatever platform that we have, that's only given to us as an opportunity to make Christ known. It has nothing to do with us because we're all interim in our ministries. And yes, we're all in ministry. I'm an interim pastor. You're an interim in your ministry. That one day, <laughs> you're not gonna be there anymore. One day, we're all gonna hand it off to the next generation. And right now, it's our turn to step up and be the church. There's no more of like, oh, remember in the glory days when we used to do all this? No, this is our turn. And so whatever platform, whatever position, whatever resources that we have, 
It's not about us, but humbling ourselves to see what does God want to do through us? And I struggle with this mentality at times. I really do. To have this like, I just want to make a name for myself. I struggle with that at times. You know, and I'll be honest. I'm over there. I'm praying before I come up here. And it's like, I want Sunday to go well. I don't want anybody to walk out and be like, that guy is a moron. Well, at least for good reasons, right? You know what I mean? Like, I, I want the service to go well. I don't want anything to mess up. I want to bring a good word, but I don't want it to be about me. And I surrender that to the Lord. Like, Lord, you know that I want this to go well. You know that I want people to be impacted by your word. Again, not because of me, but because of you. And I have to fight that inside me. And I have to fight that. And I think pride's a, a massive thing that not just within me, but even in the position, I think it, it detriments ministries time and time again. And it's not about us. And so he gives us a child, and we have that mentality to make a name for ourselves. But what I love is like Acts 4.2. We already have a name. Acts 4 says that there's no other name under heaven and on earth by which we must be saved. So I don't need to make a name for myself. God gave Jesus the name above every other name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess. So I don't need to make a name for myself. I just need to refuse confidence in myself and refuse that worldly ego and exalt Christ as my all. You might be thinking like, all what, Nick? No, all. He's it. So if I want to understand how to be a, a really good husband, I'm going to look to Jesus. If I want to understand what it means to be a good father to my kids, I'm looking to Jesus. If I'm looking to say, okay, what does it mean to be a pastor? I'm going to look to Jesus. And whatever occupation we have, how do I serve whoever I am serving? Let it be a boss, people that I provide something for. How do I do that best? He is our all. We look to Jesus in all of that. And so it's denying ourselves like we talked about in 16, taking up our cross and we're following Jesus. And so when we, hit our, get, when we hit certain situations in our lives and we wonder, okay, what am I supposed to do here? I love that wisdom. This isn't my problem. Lord, I'm yours. My life is surrendered. I'm dead in Christ. This is all you. How do you want me to address this problem? I'm just your servant. And we're gonna find ourselves in really hard situations sometimes. I love James. If any of us lacks wisdom, let us seek God. But I think he understands and knows what we're going through. He is that sympathetic high priest that whatever we're dealing with, just seek him and let him lead and guide you. So I don't need to worry about what would I do. I just need to be fully dependent on Jesus because that's true biblical humility. That happens when we're being fully dependent on Jesus. And I love it, because if you remember back in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who are burdened and weary. Some scriptures even say heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Another word for humble. I'm gentle and humble. No wonder when he called for a kid to come forward, the kid did. My kids are a little more shy than that. If we're in a big group of people and I'm going to call one of them out to stand up here, three out of four are going to say no. Only one might do it. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> the other three, they'll look at me and be like, nope, you're on your own, Dad. Good luck. They hate when I use them in sermon illustrations. And one of you wise people said, hey, 
uh, every time your dad uses you in a sermon illustration, uh, our pastor used to give their kids five bucks every time they did that. Well, I'd be broke by now, thank you very much. So you can keep that to yourself and not tell my kid. But Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And he brings this child and he's showing that true biblical humility happens when we're just dependent upon Jesus. So followers of Jesus, we don't need to make a name for ourselves. We just need to make his name known. There's a really cool scene in the book of Acts where there was some Jewish exorcist rolling around trying to pull demons out of people. And they get to this, uh, there were seven sons of Sceva. I love this story. And they get to this demon-possessed person and they're trying their tricks and their little things and it's not working. And finally, the demon inside the person looks at him and says, Jesus, I know. Peter, I've heard of, or Paul, I've heard of. But you, I don't know who you are. And the demon beat him and they ran away naked and afraid. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. We just make Jesus know. Because even the demons know his name and they shudder. And for some reason, I feel like we, capital C Church, we've lost sight of the power in the name of Jesus. That we've lost sight of truly who he is and when we are in him. So we don't need to grab life by the horns and lead ourselves. We, we just need to take his yoke upon us and learn from Jesus. So whatever situation we're in, whatever problem, whatever issue it is, just being fully dependent upon Jesus. And Jesus continues, and he says some pretty harsh stuff in this little teaching section here. He's like, hey, whoever is going to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And so he, he uses this mentality of a child saying little ones, and he's really not just talking about kids. So we're not talking about just how you treat kids, even though you should treat kids well, okay? Or Kim Knapp will come in here and kick you in the face, and I'll let her. I joke about, you know, the whole, like, pediatric giving kids shots. She glares at me every time for it. I said, hey, I was just doing my job. She's like, we don't treat kids that way. I'm like, over-exaggeration. But he's not talking about just how we treat kids. When Jesus starts saying these little ones, he's talking about those that are going to humble themselves in the service to Jesus. All right? So when he's saying, whoever causes one of these people that have humbled themselves and living fully dependent upon Jesus. Whoever causes one of these who believe in me to sin, and we know the rest of it. It's greater for you to take a millstone, which is a massive old rock, tie it around your neck, which is pretty much impossible to even move on your own and throw yourself into the water. That would be a better outcome than what would await you if you did that. Now, do not look for millstones.com, trying to buy one and going out to the lake, jumping off the toll bridge. Don't, don't do that. That's not what we're saying but what is Jesus saying? See, if we cause someone else to sin, we're a thief and we're a murderer. We've stolen purity, we've stolen faith, we have stolen joy, and we've brought death. And all death is is separation. Think back clear to the garden with Adam and Eve. They said, God told them, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So did Adam die right then or did he die 900 years later? He died right then because he was separated from God. And so when we cause other people to sin, we bring separation between them and Jesus. We are, we are bringing death into their life. 
So the greatest person we could have in our lives is someone who encourages us in our walk with Jesus and fights for our holiness. I've said it to students for years as they started flirting with the whole dating world and having a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend and going on little dates and yeah, you gotta do the little heel pop right then you do that there. And we would, we would, boy or girl, we'd have these students come up and be like, he's so great or she's so awesome. And they would, they would like try to like talk us into it or something. And they'd get to the end and they'd be like, and I would ask, you know, are, are they a part of a church? Do they know Jesus? No, but I bet I can change them. And I said, those words right now are in fact true. You are going to change them, meaning they're going to change you more than you are going to change them. Those words right there. When you think this, we called it missionary dating. That's like, that's not what Jesus meant when he said, go and make disciples. Go and make boyfriends and girlfriends, and maybe they'll come to Jesus. No, no, no. The greatest person we could have in our lives is someone who encourages us in our walk with Jesus and fights for our holiness, fights for our purity, fights for our faith. And I think there's a reason that this this thing called the church, we're meant to fellowship together. Why? So we can encourage one another and fight for each other's holiness. Instead of like trying to get people to turn away and how close to sin can we get, how passionately can we pursue Jesus with our lives? And how passionately can we pursue Jesus as a church as a whole? As a track and cross country runner, you know, the saying is so true. If you wanna run fast, run by yourself. And there was very few that could keep up with me. And it was a lonely road and it was never fun. But if it was one of those long days where we're gonna run 12, 18 miles, if you wanna run far, run together. Because there were times, even in that, that I needed to be encouraged. There's times others need to be encouraged. And mainly I ran with others so that when a dog was chasing us, I didn't have to outrun the dog. I just had to outrun them. They're like, Nick, this isn't fair. But if we want to run further, if we, want to, if we want to see the Lord move and work in and through us, don't forsake the assembling together. Now, does that mean you can never have a Sunday morning off? We're not taking attendance. But I think it's good that we fellowship together, that we commune together. There's something about that. And so we need individuals in our lives that are going to fight for us. And then we need to be fighting for other people as well. The mentality of not my circus, not my monkeys, I don't care what's going on in their lives. If that's true, we really don't love one another. If I see, or if we see brokenness in each other's lives, if we see even just a small deviation from the life that we wanna live to honor and pursue Christ, if we see that deviation in one of us and we say, you know what? it'd be too awkward for me to walk up to Gary and say something about this because it's not my place. It absolutely is our place. That's what it means to be the church is that even if we see that, it is out of love that we're gonna go to one another and say, hey, the very thing that I see in you, I know you don't wanna live that out. Or here, I, I see some caution, some red flags. Let's talk. That's where we need relationships. That's where we need accountability with one another because have we ever found ourselves far deep into sin? And it's like, how did we ever get here? And if we would have, if somebody would have just known and pulled us out, isn't that the greatest thing we would have wanted? Absolutely. To keep us from doing that. 
And so we need to step into each other's lives. And it's hard, and it's awkward, and it's weird, and it's welcome to the church. But we can't walk around with masks on and this facade that everything's okay. None of us are okay. We're absolutely in need of Christ. So that very thought right there shows us that we're all broken. Some of you just a little more than others. And I'm the chief one of them. But if you don't feel welcome here, just look at me because I'm the most messed up and broken. And it's like, if they're letting that guy in the door, I'll at least come for a coffee and a donut. And so we need each other. Let's say it the other way that's a little more harsh. There are subtle ways that we cause other people to sin. And we think about that, like we hear what Jesus is saying, you know, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's greater for this. And it's like, I'm not slinging dope. I'm not trying to throw drugs at a kid. I'm not trying to do all these things, these massive sins, but there are subtle ways we do it. There are subtle ways that we try to pull people away from their walk with Jesus. James 4, 7 talks about when we know the right thing to do and we fail to do it, it is sin to us. So that's personal. When we know, hey, this is the right thing to do and I should do that and I don't do it, that is sin. And I think sometimes, a lot of times, that's the bigger sin that sometimes happens in the body is we try to keep people from doing the right thing and we cause them, as James is saying, to sin. I had a student, we took her on a Honduras mission trip. Had a great time, it was awesome. We are recapping at the end of it, and I asked all the students, hey, would you ever come back? And all of them said yes, except for her. She says, nope, I will never come back here. I said, well, good, I really didn't like you at all either. No. And she said, it, it kind of left it at that. And then like months go by, she graduates from high school, and all of a sudden she's gonna go to a missionary training in Kansas City. She's actually in Iceland right now as a missionary. And she came back and I had her speak at the youth group and I said, hey, <laughs> what happened? Because you told me, I will never do this again. And then the realization hit. She said, in Honduras where we went, they already had the gospel. That school was doing great things and preaching the gospel. She goes, I want to go where the gospel is not being preached. Deal. I'll take it. I like it. And she was, so she came in and she told her story to the students and she was only like a year or two removed from other students. Like some of these students went to youth group together. And the hardest part of her story was her parents who absolutely loved the Lord, big part of our church. And they said, you're being foolish to go off and be a missionary. How about you go to college, get a degree first. So if this little missionary thing doesn't work out, you have something to fall back on. We do that to each other. God had put in her heart, this is the right thing to do. But there's those subtle ways. It's like, you know what? You really don't need to do all of that. How about just a little bit? You, you don't need to serve wholeheartedly for Jesus. Just a little bit. Or you don't need to give all of that to Jesus. How about you just, and we do these little subtle ways that we keep people from laying all that they have at the feet of Jesus. And we do it in the, in the sake of uh, self-preservation for them. Like, oh, I'm just looking out for you. I'm keeping you from making a foolish decision. But the last time I checked, the gospel is foolish to the world. And so are we walking in the ways of the world? Or are we walking in humility, being fully dependent upon Jesus? 
And so when he hits us with a big, crazy idea, and it's like, all right, this is going to be an uproar, are we obeying him? Or are we keeping people from walking in the fullness with Jesus? Those are subtle ways that can happen. And we need to see that not just in others. We need to see it in ourselves. We need to understand even when those little temptations for not just the big glaring sins that we always talk about, but what about pride? What about self-righteousness? Where we think we're just a little bit above the law and we're a little bit better than everybody else and that'll never happen to me. Said those words. And so what's our response when temptations come our way? Because Jesus is saying, woe to the world for temptations to sin, but, and it's necessary, they're gonna happen. It's not an if, it's a when temptations are coming into your life. See, so whatever we do to remove temptations to sin from our lives, whatever we do, it will never be enough. The ascetics tried to do that. They're like, all right, we want to wholeheartedly live for Jesus. We need to get away from this brokenness in this world. They're going to go live up on a high mountain. The problem is, is the most sin and brokenness was internal. It wasn't those around them. It's an internal thing. So no matter how far you run, wherever you hide, the biggest problem is a heart problem. And we have to understand, temptations are going to come from now until the day we die. One of my professors was telling us a story when he was in Bible college. He had this older uh, professor. He's like 74, 75, maybe 80. I don't know. Really old. And he, and he would always pray. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to get beat up in the parking lot after this. <laughs> You're real funny. Thank you. He said that my professor would always pray before the class started. And so just, just a normal Tuesday, having class, Old Testament survey, whatever it is, his professor's praying, and, and Lord, just be with me as I'm just a lustful old man. Like all the students kind of looking up with an eye open, and they're like, <laughs> says amen, they're going to start class, and one of them's like, sir, can we talk? Like you're still struggling with sin. Like you, you are like the most holy person we have ever met. You're the professor, you're the lead guy. Like you're still struggling with lust. He's like, I'm not dead. I'm old, but I'm not dead. That sin is always going to become knocking on our door. It's always going to be temptations coming across it. No matter where we are at in our walk with the Lord, Satan isn't done either. That he wants nothing more than to try to destroy and torpedo our lives. And so we have to understand, whatever we do to remove temptation from life, it's never going to be enough. That's why I need people in my life that are looking at me, because some of the things I'm going to be blind to, just like you're driving, you've got blind spots. I need people in my life that are going to see those blind spots and see those things that are going to help where maybe I don't have that strong of an accountability. I haven't put up good guardrails. I need others in my life in that. And our fight for sin against sin is always going to be a part of our lives. But when sin comes knocking on our door, let Jesus answer it. That it's always going to be coming. And there's something else. And there's something else. Let it not be something on the internet or music or uh, your anger with a spouse. Like, there's always going to be a knock on your door. That sin is trying to enter your life. The easiest thing to do, Jesus, it's for you. I'll let you talk to him. Like, I can't wait. And I, I say that, and I, I would love to wait about 30 years, Kaylin. Okay. I can't wait until some boy wants to come knocking on my door to take my sweet little girl on a date. 
He's going to knock on the door. I'm answering it. He's expecting her. I'm answering the door. We need to do the same thing in our sin. That it's always going to become knocking. And a lot of times our curiosity gets us. Oh, that's really not even that sin. That's not even a big deal. I, I can crack the door open. It still has that chain lock. Can't get it quite open. The moment you turn the handle, you're done. We need to be fully dependent upon Jesus. So humility is understanding we haven't arrived, that we're still in the fight. No matter how old, no matter how young we are, we're still in the fight. And so when sin comes knocking on our door, let Jesus answer it. But what does happen when we do open that door? How does our loving, good father respond to us. So what is God's response when we do wander into sin and temptation? And I love starting in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels, guardian angels, always see their face of my Father who is in heaven. And what do you think? And then he gives, gives us the parable of the lost sheep. And if you remember from Luke 15, it's actually one parable. You have the lost coin, you have the lost sheep, and you have the prodigal lost son. It's actually one parable, there's three components to it. it. It's always to be kind of taught is one. And here we just get the lost sheep part of it. And when you read just these few verses, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes away, you see the father go and search. You see the shepherd go and search for it. 99 to one, I mean, that's 1%. I don't know what is acceptable uh, in the military of acceptable casualty, but there is a number in that. And I do believe it is more than 1%. So if this was a successful mission, there would only be a certain percent of loss to it. Jesus doesn't even like a 1% loss. That I'm gonna walk away from the 99 and I'm going after the one. And so there's a search. Then there's a finding. And what I love, he rejoices about it. So if this is God's response, that he's going to search, he's going to find, he's going to rejoice over people that have gone astray and have been brought back home, he's going to rejoice about that, what should our response be? What should it look like for us? If we're trying to follow Christ and this is what he is doing, like we, there's verses that talk about how heaven just roars when one comes home. When one person astray, lost in their sin and their brokenness comes home, Heaven rejoices. The Father rejoices. So what should our response be? See, if we don't have a burden for those that are astray, we'll never rejoice when they come home. If we're indifferent, well, there's, there's Bob off in his brokenness and sin, and ah, Jesus really needs to grab a hold of his heart. Somebody better get over there and teach him and tell him about Jesus, man. And we just walk on. We're never going to rejoice when we hear Bob come to the Lord. Sorry, Bob, if you're here. We have to have a burden for the lost because only a burden in defeat will bring rejoicing and victory. Think of that prodigal father feeling defeated. His son, Solomon, is nothing but a money bag and an ATM. Just wanted money and completely left him. And every day, walking out, looking into the horizon, hoping his son would return, I'd feel defeated. I'd feel horribly defeated as a father. But that burden every day, standing out, looking in, praying, waiting, pleading internally, Lord, whatever it would take, 
for my son to come home. I want to see him. And having that kind of burden, that when he finally did see his son walking home, the no wonder the father ran after him, which was to be like a, a cultural taboo to see a, a, a man of that prestige running in that culture. He doesn't care because the days of defeat have been so heavy and that burden so heavy, just seeing his son come home. Doesn't know the condition, doesn't know what his son's gonna say, but just seeing his son and having that burden for so long brought so much rejoicing. No wonder, he goes, I'm gonna give him a robe, I'm gonna give him a ring, I'm gonna give him sandals. This is all Luke 15. I'll give him whatever, it doesn't matter to me. And even the older son, what, you're gonna kill the fattened calf? Yes. I'd get another fattened calf. I can't get my son to come home. And we need to have that kind of rejoicing, that kind of burden, but that kind of rejoicing. It doesn't matter. What are we willing to give up to see people come to Jesus? Are we willing to give up the robe and the ring and the sandals? Are we going to kill the fattened calf to rejoice? that somebody walked out of their brokenness and said, you know what? Life with Jesus is better than anything than life without him. Do we have that kind of heart? Does it move us when we see that? One of my favorite things to do is watch families when one of their loved ones gets baptized. And, and my wife is like that. I don't think there's been a baptism service that she hasn't just bawled and cried at. When you see just kids on up to uh, more mature people being baptized. Is that better, more mature? Being baptized. The coolest is, uh, there was one time we had an 88-year-old great-grandmother. She came to see her great-granddaughter. She's like seven or eight, get baptized. And it was a great little moment, and they're leaving, and they're driving off. They're already on the highway, and the great-grandma looks at the grandmother and says, I've never been baptized. Can we turn around and go back? And like me and the children's pastor were still there, my wife, like this, just a few families were left. They come rolling back in. It was like, oh, did you forget your purse? And she said, no, I've never been baptized. And we helped this 88-year-old great-grandmother into the baptismal, and we baptized her. And when she came out of the water, seeing her family, it was hard to hold it together. I was like splashing some water on me to try to hide the tears. Like, I can't let anybody see this. There has to be rejoicing. And I think that's why there's rejoicing in heaven because they know the fullness of what it means not to have Christ. And so when somebody turns and comes to them, there's rejoicing. And so humility, what we have to understand about humility is us putting ourselves in that position of that person and understanding the weight of, remember when we weren't walking with the Lord? Remember when we were broken and often in our sin? Humility teaches, tells us, put yourself there. And if that was you, what would you want you to do if you were them? And do it. Be fully dependent upon Jesus and do it. I don't know what that is for you. And I don't know who that person is. But I do know that we're all in ministry. And we all have spheres of influence of those around us. And there are people that are not walking with the Lord, that don't have the hope that we have, that don't have the joy that we have, that don't have the love that we have in Christ. I am praying that God puts a burden on your heart for them, 
that you can't wake up, you can't go to bed, you can't not do anything without thinking of them. And I'm praying that you would ask the Lord, all right, I'm all in. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? And would we not see a move of God through us? But humility shows us that we need to be fully dependent upon Jesus. Why? Because he's not done with us and he still has a plan for us. Not to do things or to do ministry, but to reach people with the gospel, to disciple and grow them in their walk with Jesus, that we get to be a part of that. What greater thing is there of our lives? So I just challenge you, as we're talking about this unexpected humility, where are you at? That's between you and the Lord. I don't know, I can't judge hearts, only he can. And the same message, I have to hear it again in about a half hour. And I'm telling you, there's more fingers pointed at me that I'm trying to point out, that we really are on this walk together that the same people that hopefully the Lord is putting on your heart, God's putting people on my heart as well. And so encourage me as I encourage you to live out the words that God is giving us this morning. So Father, we surrender to you. Forgive us when we think it's all about us, that our lives are, can be so focused on us. Forgive us for that. Give us moments that we can exercise true humility in our lives. That we can lift others up. Let it be more about them than ourselves. Give us opportunities to share your love, your joy, your peace, your kindness to those around us, Lord. I don't know what those situations will be. I don't know the specifics of what we should do but I pray that we would just be fully dependent upon you in them, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will provide exactly what we need in the moment that we need it. Let us have that kind of faith, that kind of dependence upon you. And even in our struggles, Lord, even in our doubts, I pray that we would press on, that we would pursue you even in those. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Calvary Lake Ozark, you guys are sent. Go love God, love others, impact the world. Thank you.